0: Good afternoon. If you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, you can be turning to the book of Song of Solomon. We don't, we don't have a scripture reading this afternoon for this particular lesson, uh, but you can be turning there. Uh, we wanted to share you a picture of uh, a lot of the material that's been collected before we get into our lesson for the boxes for, uh, that Don had been putting together for Timothy Leslie and his group. Uh, a lot of the materials that have been there, and we appreciate that. I know our library. I uh, may even have a little bit more out of that, but it's it's good, and, and we appreciate you taking part in that. We hope that that'll be encouragement uh, to those folks, and, and they'll be able to get all that together, um, but we're, we appreciate so much those who have taken part in that, and the good things that we can do uh, to continue to encourage uh, lots of folks around us. Um, as we get into our lesson tonight, or this afternoon, I appreciate we made mention last week of uh, how tough it is. Uh, we've... Had trouble in the afternoons to you know stay awake with full full stomachs. I forgot to mention that Jenny uh, Smith offered to do some calisthenics lessons for anybody. Or exercise class, anybody wanted to do that. Uh, I've got my water up here. I thought I was going to tell you I've got sun drop in it, so you know that's my my answer here. We talked about everybody having coffee, uh, but we're all doing the best we can. And uh, I've, I've got with Jeff. We'll try to keep it a little bit cooler, maybe. But we appreciate uh, your good attention and and the opportunity we have to encourage ourselves with one more lesson. I appreciate Charles uh, picking those songs. As he said, uh, this is certainly a, uh, a tough uh, book to think about. There's not a lot of choices, but certainly when we're going to come full circle as he's talking about uh, singing songs that deal with love, and that will basically be uh, where we will end our lesson because that's kind of one of the main theme themes of the book, and we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, the Song of Solomon is probably... The least studied book of the Bible. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. If you ask, uh, did a survey of which books of the Bibles are, are studied the most and the least, a lot of people, I think, would lean into the book of Revelation as being the least studied. Most people think that it's, it's so tough and very tough, and it is kind of tough to understand um, the things that are are, are discussed there. But I would say, I heard a preacher say this, but I I think I would have to agree that maybe the Song of Solomon fits into that category of the least studied books of the Bible. Now, why is that? Well, it's not a long one. And certainly, as you know we've some of us have joked about already it's the subject material is a little tougher, uh, deals with some things that you know is not necessarily appropriate in a sense if you really get into it verse by verse for uh, you know certain age groups, but it 's also something that we can be encouraged by because as we 're going to talk about in this lesson it 's a part of the bible it 's a part of what we call the canon, and so there must be, be a reason for that and something that we can glean from it. Uh, one more humorous thing that I would share with you: I heard someone say. There's a a list, there's probably several of these lists that go around, uh, top 10 reasons or or maybe top 10 signs that you need to study your Bible more. You know, we joked about this with our uh, Bible illiteracy, you know, lesson and things like that that many people don't understand what's really in there sometimes, but there's a, a list that's the top 10 signs you need to study your Bible more. A couple of those, one is if you think that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a few hit songs in the 1960s, you might need to read your Bible more. Or if the preacher asks you to turn to Genesis and you go to the table of contents to find the book of Genesis, then maybe you need to study your Bible a little more. But one of those that's on that list is that if you were to catch your children or maybe young people reading the Song of Solomon and you would say, well, who gave you that? You know, that material is too explicit for you, then maybe you need to study your Bible a little more because certainly it contains those things, as we will touch on, Uh, But if you don't know what's in it, you know, and somebody else is reading it, then maybe we need to educate ourselves a little more. The title of the book, of course, is Song of Solomon, maybe in your Bible. You may also see Song of Songs. Now, I have the New King James in front of me, as I usually do, and it begins in verse number one by saying the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the idea of the Hebrew title there of Song of Songs is the idea of the best. You know, the holiest of holies, we might say, or the best of the best. Well, this is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Uh, as we have talked about recently, there are the books of the Bible that we've been going through are the section of Scripture, the Old Testament in particular, that we call uh, you know, the poetry section. And so we've mentioned that the Psalms deal with lyrical. Uh, the Psalms are lyric poems. The Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are didactic or teaching, that word meaning teaching, teaching poems or teaching literature, and then some people group Job and the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon together as dramatic. Now we're going to come back to that word dramatic or drama in just a minute as we think about how we interpret this book, but it certainly kind of finishes um, that way or kind of fits into that category, and then we will come back and talk about at the appropriate month uh, the book of Lamentations being a book of lament. So Uh, That is kind of where Song of Solomon fits into this particular section of Scripture. We try to talk each month about the human author, and the human author is, of course, Solomon. Now, there's no really good reason to think otherwise. As we say, uh, some people will debate this. There will be some folks that would like to argue uh, about it. Um, But we know that the true author, of course, is the Holy Spirit, God speaking by the Holy Spirit to men who were who would write down these things. So, in a sense, the author is the Holy Spirit, but the human author who recorded these things for those to read, and including us today, uh, would be Solomon. And there are a few other reasons. One of those is the indication of royalty. If you have your Bible open there, you notice chapter 1 in verse number 12. There is a mention, while the king is at his table. Also, in chapter 3... Verses 6 through 11, in particular, verse 7 says, Behold, it is Solomon's couch. Verse 9 says, Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king. So I mention this very often, but if you you do a deep dive and you go into some of these so-called scholarly people who write these books and, and really think about this, some might argue it, but it begins. It begins, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. There's these other references to royalty, And so there's really no good reason to suppose otherwise that it's not Solomon that is the human author here. The date. The date is unknown. If you're jotting down notes and you like to usually make some extra notes with what we say, you can put it's maybe around 960 B.C., 960 B.C., But uh, it's, it's unknown. One reason to give it the date of 960 B.C. is because many people suppose that it was likely during the early years of Solomon's life. Well, why is that? Well, let's talk about it. We talked about it last month, actually, with the book of Ecclesiastes. But you remember that some people put into categories or into grouping these three. Number one, the Song of Solomon would be in his early life. Well, why is that? Well, because it's written from a youthful, almost a zest for life, of course, the physical nature of the marriage relationship being discussed, that might mean he, it's early in his life and he's writing about those things. So number one, Song of Solomon. Number two, he wrote Proverbs. Proverbs is the book of advice, right? It's an older person writing to a young man. He says several times in the book of Proverbs, listen, listen, my son. Well, who says that? A person who's in their middle age or even a little bit older age writing to young people. So maybe he wrote Song of Solomon and then Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes because as we talked about a month ago, Ecclesiastes is the book that seems to say, hey, I've made some mistakes. You know, it's a person saying, I've messed up at times, learn from me. The idea that life is is folly, you know, that, that life is just something that comes and it goes. And that's a person who is certainly advanced in years and has learned those hard lessons and so the date is totally uh, maybe you know completely unknown but we can guess maybe around 960 uh, BC and the message the message we might say in one sense is the beauty of wedded love which is the gift of God the beauty of wedded love as this book is described and again depending on the version you have some of you are hopefully open to it but you may see headings It's almost like there are, you know, descriptions of who is speaking. If you sat down and you tried to read the Song of Solomon without some of those, it would be really tough. But it makes sense. Now, certainly those are not inspired, but it makes sense as you look through. Mine in particular says the Shulamite. It talks about the beloved and these people who are kind of speaking back and forth. But certainly we understand the message is one of wedded love. And so with that, let's talk about a few key words. And they all sort of run together. I'll go ahead and put them all up there. But beloved is mentioned around 33 times. The word beloved is used. The word love is used some 18 times. And the last one being 15 times, I put beauty on the screen for the sake of space, but, but also beautiful, beauty or beautiful, some forms of that are all used here uh, in different ways to describe this idea of the gift of God and wedded love. Now, the question that sometimes comes up is, does it belong? Does it belong in the canon, in the Bible? Why is it in there? And and that's something that that we'll have to to talk a little bit about in just a moment, but it's something you can think about a little further. One of the questions that sometimes comes up to to people ask to say, does it belong? Is Some people would say, is it too sensual? Is the words and the message and what's said sometimes in the verses too sensual? Now, there's a need for tact, and there's a need for being appropriate, and that's certainly my goal through this lesson is to try to strike that balance but certainly, we know that this physical relationship between two married people is a gift from God. It is something that is to be enjoyed within God's, the boundaries that God has set forth. I wanted to share a, a couple of quotes with you. Uh, they're a little long. I'll read them if you can make it out on the screen and read it. That, that's great, too. Uh, the first one comes from Wayne Jackson, and it says this about the idea, is it too sensual? It says, the purpose of this inspired poem appears to be a commendation of married love. It extols the bliss of genuine love after the divine order. Sexuality is a dominant theme, but there is nothing base in this, for sex is not an invention of Satan. Rather, it was ordained of God for the pleasure and happiness of humanity within the confines of the marriage relationship. How tragic that this heavenly gift has been so perverted across the centuries in such a variety of ways. And that's a discussion by Wayne Jackson. I love to reference him in the Christian Courier website. Um, But this discussion that, you know, if we want to be honest, then these things are perfectly fine and ordained by God in a particular way. But yet we can treat it the opposite of that, which is it's something that's dirty, for lack of a better phrase, something that we shouldn't talk about that should be avoided. One other one from David Hester says reluctance to study the book reflects perhaps more on our society's skewed and perverted image of sexuality than on God's inspired word and that's written by David Hester who currently works down at Faulkner and an introduction to the song of Solomon it really has a timeless application the book establishes marriage as the one of the bedrocks of society and we could go around this room and probably we could give a whole, uh, a whole host of ideas of what's wrong with our country, right? What's wrong with our world? How did we get here? Things seem to be so great in some ways. Now things seem to be so awful. And really, of course, I'm being a little facetious. The truth is kind of in between that. It's not always been great, and it's not all awful. But yes, there are certainly problems. And these two quotes kind of hit at it. We have taken marriage... And we have taken the family, even as we started discussing on Wednesday night in our Bible class, there is such a a skewed idea, concept of what a family should be. And because of that, then it transfers over into what we think about the church and what we think about sexuality and lots of other things. And so it causes a problem. This book establishes marriage, and the marriage relationship is one of the bedrocks of society. Marriage as God would have it, is a gift. It's a taste of heaven on earth when we think about how great a marriage can be. And so we need to think about that when it comes to this discussion of this book as well. Uh, Brother Wayne Jackson also gives a brief outline. Uh, There's not a lot to it. I mean, you can jot it down if you'd like to, uh, but it's kind of like centered around a marriage. The first step or the first uh, part sometimes is the courtship. Chapter 1 and verse 1, going through chapter 3, and verse number 5. So you've got a courtship between two people, a man and a woman. Secondly, you have a wedding beginning in chapter 3 in verse number 6 and going through chapter 5 in verse number 1. It really is a a short book, but there is then this idea of a wedding. Then, just as is natural with the course of a wedding, the the courtship, the wedding, after the wedding, there is the maturing in marriage. Chapter 5 in verse 2, almost through the end of the book, almost totally through the end of it. But this deals with difficulties, right? I mean, that comes with it. You see, I I was kind of laughing. Maturing in marriage sounds like this great ideal situation, right? We all mature in marriage together. Well, most of you know, and most of us can speak to the fact, it doesn't always sound that beautiful and that easy because there are difficulties. But if you read chapters 5 through the first part of chapter 8, you will notice there are some difficulties there as well. But going through the difficulties helps us mature it's about the it's even a parallel with the idea of our young people you know our young folks sit up here on the front rows and we we want to protect them we want to make sure things are good for them but we also know in some aspect it helps to go through trials right when you get knocked down you learn to get back up you learn that sometimes life is tough and you just got to figure it out and some people go into marriage thinking it's going to be great and we will mature and grow old together and things will be wonderful and hopefully they are in a sense Every marriage is probably going to have some difficulties, and that's discussed here as well. And then the last section, the rest of chapter eight through the end of the book—sorry about that—is the a climatic statement about the nature of love. Excuse me, a statement about the nature of love and how wonderful love can be. And as uh, Charles mentioned it, and I said at the beginning, we'll come back around to that uh, in just a few moments as we think about some some. Firm application for us. But I, when you think about an outline, that was one by Wayne Jackson there, and that's just about the best way to kind of break it down. Now, before we, we get to some of the application, I do want to give you and share with you one of the questions that often comes up about whether or not it belongs in the Bible is how you interpret the book. And there are five different ways you can interpret it. I only gave you one if you have your bulletin in front of you in your outline. I gave you what I think to be and what others think to be the best one. The best way. I'm going to give you four others, and we'll have a brief discussion. Uh, but then we'll get to the last one there, which should be the one I believe in your outline. Uh, the first way you can interpret it is allegorical, and this holds the book to be an extended metaphor. Uh, and so it's the idea that it's not an actual account. Many of you are familiar with the idea of allegories. Um, you know, something being allegorical. So it's not a historical account. It's not real. It didn't really happen. Happen, but it's simply a teaching device. And so it's about God's dealings with Israel, or it's about Jesus' relationship with the church. And here's the point, real briefly. Some people, you may have heard lessons before in the Song of Solomon, and some preachers will get up and they'll just say, well, this is about Jesus and the church. Okay, maybe, I mean, we can kind of talk about that, but maybe there's a little more to it, and it's kind of hard just to take that large, very high overview of it. The problem with this, with it being allegorical, is it kind of stretches the text. And let me me be clear, try to explain this why. Think about it. It almost borders on inappropriate with the idea of the physical relationship, right? We're not trying to be inappropriate, but there's so much discussion on the sexual and physical relationship between a husband and wife. If it's simply Jesus in the church... I mean, the New Testament, Paul mentions that the church is the bride of Christ, but that's as far as it goes, right? It doesn't get into that physical uh, relationship, that emphasis. And so it kind of strains the text to just say, well, it's an allegory. Not only that, but that's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, right? It's not applied to the church. And and wouldn't somebody kind of have mentioned that if that's primarily its purpose? And so there's no indication at all that it's allegorical uh, when we think about that. Secondly, and kind of connected to that, there's the idea of it being uh, a part of typology. Now, some of you are familiar with this when things of the Old Testament, some people we talk about Adam and Jesus and, it being, and Adam being a type in a sense and these kinds of things. And so uh, the, this is different from the first in that it acknowledges that it's historical, that it really happened. But it views it as an account, as the account as a type of pattern, if you will, of the Bible. Now, what's the other parallel that we would make here and that's the book of Hosea right Hosea when we think about it the idea of Hosea and Gomer and their relationship and you know it says that Gomer was uh you know cheated on Hosea and so you know that that's kind of an idea here it's it shows the way that the children of Israel cheated on God in a sense but the problem with that is Hosea spells it out right i mean Hosea says this is what it is this relationship between Hosea and Gomer is like God and the children of Israel well, that's not found in the book of the Song of Solomon. And so it's kind of the same problem here. Not only that, but the, the Jews, the Jewish community was really divided on this. I mean, they would fuss about it and argue and just, you know, well, who does the woman represent then? If it's a typology, who does the woman mean? And who's the man? And there's these other characters. What does that represent? And so you kind of go from there. And so, you know, typology could be one thing, but let's go a little further. Third, we might say, is Drama. Or dramatic. Boy, I went way far ahead, right? Jumped like 45 slides. There's not that many left. Don't worry. Not that many left. I'll let Brian get me back there. But the third is going to be drama. If you're making your notes there and adding to it, it's drama. And some of you are familiar with the name Origen. Origin, O-R-I-G-E-N. Origin was a church father, a church historian who wrote around 250 A.D. And in 250 A.D., so let's go forward. After death, right, we say... 250, after Christ has died, Origen is the first one to explain or say that it has to do with drama. And so, you know, it kind of views it as something that should be sung or something that should be acted, but there's some problems there because, uh, you know, the elements of a drama is that there are beginning and there's a middle, there's an end, there are characters, there's information for the director, and, you know, it's just kind of, you have to change the text To make it fit a a drama or a dramatic reading and here's the other thing drama as a style of writing is completely foreign to Hebrew literature I mean there's different types of Hebrew literature but there's nowhere that there's other drama that is mentioned now I use that word with Job and we might just simply say it's a telling of a real thing as drama Uh, but I don't know that drama necessarily fits it either The fourth is literal. Before we get to our last one, literal. And literal is going to kind of touch on the last one. They're going to kind of connect together. This views the book as it appears to be on the surface. It's a story about two young lovers and their feelings and their desires for each other. This takes care of some of the other problems. That means there's no allegories. We don't have to determine who describes who or what describes what. Uh, It doesn't have to, we don't have to rework the text to fit the drama It doesn't leave a person searching for explanations of some of the more, uh, you know, physical type of descriptions that are used there in the relationship. But the problem with the literal is then why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? What value does it have? Does God just say, hey, here's the story. I'm going to tell you a story. There you have it. I'm done. That's what literal would be is that's all that it is. And so what's the purpose of it? Well, that brings us to our last one, which is connected with it. And we've already used this word once, but didactic, moral. And this is, by the way, this is by our brother Denny Petrillo, who writes or who's a part of the Bear Valley uh, School of, of Preaching out in Colorado. He did this as a part of World Video Bible School. And this was the way that he described it as being the best interpretation. It's similar to the literal, real people, a real account, but it's written to teach, didactic meaning teach, certain moral principles didactic moral, that could explain why it was read every time that the Passover was celebrated. Did you know it was read every time the Passover was celebrated? We talked about Passover this morning, but it was read at the Passover. Well, what would that do? Well, most women would be present and the book would be excellent teaching to husbands and wives about the marriage relationship and how they should feel about one another in spite of their individual imperfections, right? Let's call everybody together. Hey, men, hey, women, guess what? Neither one of you are perfect, but when you're married together, then you have this relationship, and you can learn about it from the book of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Not only that, but this idea of teaching and moral seems to fit the most logical view because it puts to rest for all time. Understand, listen clearly, it puts to rest for all time that the idea of sex is dirty dirty or it's illicit, or it's something that we shouldn't talk about. Only the illicit sex is condemned in the Bible. The sexual relationship is God's gift for people to enjoy within the confines of marriage, with his mandated guidelines. And how do we know that? One, one way we can know that is there's something that we can read that reminds us of that. It's not something to be avoided. Yes, it's maybe a little uncomfortable. Yes, it's something that's not always easy to teach to a large group who span different ages. But it is something that certainly should be talked about in the home. And it is something that God has set specific guidelines for. And if it's taught to the congregation, if it's read at the Passover, maybe it's a little more than literal, but it's written for our learning and so that we can learn the moral principles that God would have us to know couple other things before we get to our last points. It is unique in that God's name is not used and it's also not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. Now, I should have given a pop quiz. Anybody remember the other book where God's name is not used? The book, book of Esther, right? God's name is not used there either. But it's not used here. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, you might jot down chapter 8 and verse number 6. Chapter 8 and verse number 6, or if you have one at home, you could go home and look at it or you pull it up on your phone or or whatever. But in chapter 8 and verse number 6, the name of the Lord is used in the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. And so you'll find the name of the Lord there in that particular translation. But most other translations, the name of God is not used. And so we're back to our other point then. Question, why is it in the Bible? Why do we need to talk about it? Well, we've already mentioned some of those reasons um, because of the way that it teaches us and helps us learn about uh, God's plan for marriage and the physical relationship. But we also note here that it's nowhere quoted in the New Testament. It's the only book of the Bible, I didn't put some of these on the slides, but it's the only Bible book that's composed entirely of speeches. It's mostly monologue with practically no dialogue, no talking back and forth. Uh, and so there are also some very rare words that are used. Approximately one-third of the Hebrew words occur so infrequently that there's, there, it's hard to establish their meaning anywhere else. If you've ever done a study of how we got the Bible, and I'd like for us to do that sometime in the future, uh, whether it be at lessons like this on a Sunday afternoon or a Wednesday night Bible class, but how we got the Bible. But a lot of times you take words and you compare how they're used, their context. A lot of the words in the Song of Solomon are used so infrequently you can't do that. Uh, there are many words that are very rare that are used here. All right, two lessons, two applications, In this lesson will be yours. We might say the power of love. We already talked about this. Chapter 8 and verse number 7, if you have your Bible. Chapter 8 and verse number 7. True love endures. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. You want to talk about the power of love. There have been how many countless upon countless movies, you know, romantic comedies, uh, movies about love, books that are sold about love. But the power of love is truly found here. In the song of Solomon, in the word of God, and we see that, that true love endures, and we are thankful for that. Then we might say, secondly, we learn about God's high view of marriage and the physical relationship. Uh, sometimes I try to give you a New Testament passage, and I didn't get it in your outline, but if you're making notes, you could write down Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4. Hebrews thirteen four. God's high view of marriage and the physical relationship is that the physical relationship should stay within marriage. Hebrews 13:4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Uh, there's numerous references in the book about how the woman kept herself pure, about keeping yourself exclusively for each other. And we understand that. That this is the view God wants us to take concerning the physical relationships that we have and the idea of marriage. Uh, one other thing, one other interesting passage is chapter 2 and verse 15. I heard one preacher say this for an application, application, that we need to catch the foxes. Catch the foxes. What's he referring to? Chapter 2, verse 15. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. And I heard a, one preacher say this is a good application for us. It's really a good application for our young people as they think about the things that they are preparing themselves for in marriage. Catching the foxes might refer to uh, personality differences and family differences between a man and a woman or a young man and a young woman. In-law issues that sometimes come up. Our attitudes toward our finances religious differences, all of these things are like little foxes that might be running around, so to speak, in a relationship. And if we don't catch those foxes, those foxes, as he says here, the writer says, will spoil the vines. You ever known anybody in a lot of marriage trouble? They just can't seem to get along. They fight about their in-laws. They fight about their finances. They fight about their kids. They fight about all these things. There's encouragement here that we try to take care of those things as we look towards the marriage relationship and for our young people as they consider getting married in the future. The Song of Solomon is interesting. It is something that is probably not studied very often. But I hope that in the few moments we spent together tonight, there's something that you can take from it to think about life, to think about love. As many of us here in this audience gathered together are older and either are married or have been married, Maybe there's something that you can use and take from reading this book and help our young people. Maybe not a young person here, but maybe a young person in your life. As we think about God's plan for marriage and for the physical relationship, it can be very encouraging for us to study these kinds of things. Certainly, this is one of those lessons where the the invitation doesn't quite flow naturally out of it, as many of them do. But as we often say, especially on our Wednesday nights together, we are assembled here. We are a family We have gathered to sing and to study, and as we conclude this lesson, a song has been selected that through its words we might encourage you if you need to make a change in your life. Like I said, it doesn't always apply to the lesson. You may have nothing going on that deals with the book of Song of Solomon or your marriage or anything. It could be sin in your life. It could be stress in your life. It could be that you've been putting off, needing to become a Christian, and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. We've selected a song that through its words we might encourage you that you would either become a child of God or come back to him, or as we said, has nothing to do with the lesson, but we're here, we want to encourage one another, and we'd love to encourage you now to come back to him, even now as we stand and as we sing.